all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 332 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the special service regimen of episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that back in May of 1942, there was a special service regiment activated. And it was the Engineer General Service Regiment, and it happened to be the 300. 32nd. That's right, folks. And with that wonderful little bit of special service regiment knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! Or shall I say, permission to come aboard for this episode, matey. I guess. I mean, I was trying to keep with the Sinbad theme and the 332 whatever regiment thing you were talking about. Yeah, but the Sinbad episode isn't until next week. Ah. And besides that, it was the Army, not the Navy, that did it. So, you struck out, like, twice in a row. That was impressive. You know, that, I mean, I, I do it so that you could feel better about yourself. I only do it for you. And that's it. <laughs> that is it. Well, I will take it. It's the small victories in life that matter most. But how are you, Matthew? Yes, how how are you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks. <laughs> I'm I'm ready to get right into some glorious goodness of Ray Harryhausen. We we've been doing this is the three part three of our four part series on Ray Harryhausen. So I mean I'm good and you're good and we're about a month away from the final upgrade to the SO. That is true. Yes, that would be uh, my more significant other will now become my even more? most. My most. It would be the most significant other. Yes. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I don't know how she would appreciate it, but I, I do like the sound of the most significant other. I think her uh, her devout Catholic family would frown upon that if the priest were to wed us as husband and his most significant other. Well, I think you should just put it into the vows, and then what are they going to do, right? Just say you're going to have your own special vows, and then when it gets there, and now you, my darling, are officially the most significant other in my life. Now, as long as you don't follow it up with you're the most of my significant others in my life, that probably doesn't sound as good. I think that's the wrong faith. Possibly the faith that we will delve into, delve or delve into, in next week's discussion of Sinbad. Entirely possible. It is entirely possible. But until then, why don't we talk about some other awesome Ray Harryhausen flicks? Yes, let's do it. These flicks mark the high adventure Ray Harryhausen line of flicks. So I'm excited. They sure do. That's all right. Well, then let's do it, folks. Here we go. It's the movie we we That's right. These two movies that we're doing this week are Mysterious Island from 1961 and Jason. 
and the Argonauts from 1963. So, uh, I imagine we're just going to keep on going trucking in chronological order, right, sir? Yeah, that would make sense. All right, so up first, Mysterious Island. Whatever you have imagined in your wildest dreams now becomes a visual reality. As Jules Verne's most fantastic adventure in space and time becomes an amazing film experience. Don't let me fall! Lighten the basket! We gotta gain height! Jules Verne, the man whose great stories inspired such unusual films as Around the World in 80 Days, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, surpasses them all with Mysterious Island. Starring Michael Craig, who triggers the screen's most thrilling escape. Gary Merrill as a war correspondent. Joan Greenwood, shipwrecked on the mysterious island. And in this story of survival, Michael Callan and Beth Rogan. Come on. What's it doing? I don't know. Sealing us in. Also starring Herbert Lom as the mysterious Captain Nemo and his fabulous submarine, the Nautilus. Aren't we able to do anything to save ourselves? There's nothing that can be done. Super Dynamation, newest and greatest screen process, astonishes the eye with such scenes as the fight to the death with a prehistoric devilfish, the discovery and destruction of an underwater city, mysterious island, Photograph on land, under the sea, and in the air. Truly a first in motion pictures. Do you hear how mysterious that island was? Ooh. Very mysterious. Just chills, chills. I, I, I almost felt like I traveled back to the 1860s myself just now. <laughs> uh, were you a Union or were you a part of the Confederates? I believe I would have been part of the Union cause, I suppose. Good answer. Yes. All right. Well, in case you haven't been able to figure out what's happening here. So this uh, th- this film... While made in 1961, actually takes place at the end of the Civil War, and you've got a massive storm that sweeps through this Confederate prison, and some Union soldiers end up, uh, through some clever escape plans, end up escaping on this balloon. They get swept off and find themselves onto this mysterious island. And somehow, the, uh, it's amazing, because here they are in a Confederate camp, and they managed to find themselves over the Pacific Ocean. I don't know how many people in Confederate or Union America during the Civil War would have known what the Pacific Ocean looks like, but, I mean, that is just absolutely amazing that they are capable of doing that. Uh, at any rate, they, <laughs> they find themselves on this mysterious island, and all sorts of crazy things start happening, and, of course... Uh, they have a bunch of adventures, misadventures, shenanigans ensue. Why even, uh, Captain Nemo comes, uh, comes out of, uh, of, I guess, retirement, if you will. 
And, uh, it's just a whole bunch of amazing stuff happening here. So, uh, I don't know. This movie for me is definitely, definitely on the high end of the Harryhausen scale for me. I love, I really like that they left that, that at least in this particular, um, era of Harryhausen, he's, He's better known for the adventure epics that we're watching and we'll be continuing on with the Sinbad series next week and kind of leaving sci-fi behind. I think that it's also something that's kind of telling of the times because sci-fi, as amazing as it was in the 50s with the unknown, you have to remember, 61, now we're getting into the space race. We're getting ready to gear up for our own program to ultimately put a man on the moon. These are things that are kind of going on in real life. JFK has not made his his famous speech about putting the man on the moon quite yet, but these things are coming. All these things are shape making shape and I can and and so it kind of makes sense that while space is still something that is in everybody's mind and science fiction is definitely stuff that you can still uh get during this time period on TV and at your local cine, cineplex. The idea of the high epic is kind of making its return because you have this wonderful technology, especially with what with what Ray Harryhausen is doing, and you can explore a lot of different things. And that's for me what makes this film so cool is that it's not the same stuff you've seen before with a new twister, just kind of a different veneer. You're actually seeing a whole new way of looking at all of the things that Harryhausen has been building on for, you know, 24, 25 years at this point. And I think it's really, really cool to see it come together. On top of which, the acting isn't, uh, I, I think the acting has kind of, I, I didn't, I was almost going to say that the isn't as bad or whatever, but that's not really fair to the era or what we've been covering. I think that the acting, though, has actually kind of ramped up, and it actually feels more like high adventure and high epic. And I really, really enjoyed this one. It's actually, of all of them, I would have to say it's probably my second favorite. Now, it ties, in terms of score, with a couple of other movies, one of which we will cover next week. But... um I don't know. This one for me, I just really, really enjoyed all the different kinds of variety that you get with the action in this film. So I don't know. For me, this is a 4.5, Tim. What are, what are your thoughts? Where, where, where do you land on this flick? Well, The Mysterious Island came after the flick we spoke about last week. Uh, the final film we spoke about last week, I should say. 20 Million Miles to Earth. After that, he did The Strange World of Planet X in 1958, which he wasn't credited on, and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which we'll be talking about next week. Uh, And then, right before Mysterious Island in 1960, he was the special effects creator for The Three Worlds of Gulliver. And The Strange World of Planet X... 
again from 1958, was another sci-fi horror movie. This film dealt with alien spiders. But then with The Three Worlds of Gulliver, obviously about the Gulliver's travels, the Gulliver's story that we all know and love, he began moving into the direction of high adventure and family fantasy entertainment, which from here on out, he will begin receiving the rap, at least pertaining to his uh, Sinbad movies as well as Mysterious Island. He, he'll be getting the rap of being a kitty matinee movie maker, you know, because a lot of people consider these high adventure fantasy films as kitty matinee material. But of course, as what we'll talk about, that will not end up being the case since Mysterious Island did actually become one of the highest grossing films of his career. Mysterious Island came out in 1961. At the beginning of the flick, right off the bat, you'll see for some reason Ray Harryhausen is given a tiny credit. I'm not entirely sure why, but Harryhausen decided to make Mysterious Island because he wanted to make a story that general audiences are familiar with, and believe it or not, at the time, Jules Verne's Mysterious Island was actually the most looked at book. And when I was doing a little bit of research on this, I wasn't exactly sure what the most looked at book meant at the time. I don't know if that was the most read book at the time, or if it was just simply the most, I, I, I don't know about well-known or maybe thought of book pertaining to adventure books. I would have thought the stories of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn would have been some of the more popular books at the time, but no, apparently it was Jules Verne's Mysterious Island. Jules Verne's original story was pretty much just about survival on a deserted island. So Harryhausen was one of the ones who came up with the idea to incorporate, like, Captain Nemo. And because of its setting, he even originally wanted to incorporate a bunch of dinosaurs, because even though Ray Harryhausen would go on to be known as the skeleton guy, at this time, he was still very much interested in dinosaurs. But he did feel comfortable with bypassing the inclusion of dinosaurs or other mythical creatures and only including mostly average animals as his creatures for this film. When these average animals are oversized, they become more dangerous. I mean, what's more dangerous than a normal-looking crab wielding a knife? Well, how about a 35-foot crab clawing at you and grabbing one of your compadres and you having to try to spear that crab to save his life? So it's very fascinating, you know, you're going from the mythical, the fantastical, the prehistoric, you know, and now we're looking at giant average animals. I mean, there's also a chicken, well, maybe not a chicken, but like a chicken bird-like character, as well as a giant bee, which has a, a really cool set piece involving a giant honeycomb. Also, with the story, and where Captain Nemo comes in with the story... It turns out Nemo is the one who is actually breeding these animals. You know, he is making these animals large, oversized, because he believes they would be the key to feed 
an overpopulated world. Now, I don't know if that is a happy story or if that is the beginning of a very frightening Dr. Moreau slash Jurassic Park story. But um, what did you think about the overall story for this film, Matt? I mean, it's definitely something a little bit different than we have seen. It's not your go-to monster flick by any means. It's very much adventure book story-like, filled with a lot of fantasy. Uh, Did you like the incorporation of Old Man Nemo or all the other stuff? I did, because you have to remember that Jules Verne was kind of like the... Kind of like this weird amalgam of like Ray Bradbury and a little bit of Stephen King and oh I I I don't know probably with a mix of um Stephen Hawking's thrown in there right he had this ability to tell compelling stories that were somewhat off-putting when you think about the actual content and the adventure and the fantasy going on but at the same time able to predict the future very accurately and it's no wonder that you would get this kind of story from someone at that time don't forget you also have i mean it's not like we are we're not going to be the people in the era aren't going to be watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea anytime soon because they are. And it's just kind of one of those things where with the inclusion of Nemo at the story, it it begins to make everything uh, come together. All the things that you've been seeing now start to make sense. And it doesn't just make sense for the people on the island, but it makes sense to the audience as well, especially if even if they might have a passing familiarity with the book but hadn't read it, then they're like, oh, wow, he's such a crafty guy, yeah. And <clears throat> that makes that makes the storytelling a lot more believable. It, it allows you to further suspend your disbelief for what everything that's, from everything that's been happening to him so far. And, of course, it helps build to the end of the movie. So I thought it was a great story to pick i thought it was a lot of fun um i i I do like i I like this one quite a bit oh i do too don't get me wrong it's beautifully shot all the exteriors were shot in spain and i think uh, some of the interiors were as well Uh, i do know that the water tank for the opening of the film that was built within one of the stages over in shepperton or over at shepperton studios uh with the actual balloon that they were in, the basket they were in, they built it and suspended it over the tank. I, I I couldn't imagine this film not having that exciting opening because it's a very exciting opening. It reminds me a little bit of portions of like The Great Escape, you know, the Steve McQueen film, or even the great Richard Burton Clint Eastwood movie, Where Eagles Dare, where they're trying to get out of something incredibly horrific, but in doing so, they get themselves into another circumstance that's even more horrific than where they were just at. Everything just kind of keeps building and building and building until the end of the film, you have the volcano, and, well, how are they going to escape the volcano? And I do think it was pretty smart of them to leave Captain Nemo out of the film until, let's see, the movie is an hour and a half-ish, 
Nemo doesn't appear until an hour and 15 minutes into the movie, an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. So it was very smart of them to do that, because what do we know of Captain Nemo? He has a submarine, and that is the Nautilus. And in this film, Ray Harryhausen did design the Nautilus so that it didn't look like any of the other Nautiluses that were featured in films or in illustrations of books. So... Because you know about the volcano, and throughout the film it's spitting up lava and rumbling, you know it's going to explode at some point. And Nemo is there, and you don't automatically assume that they're going to escape on his boat. And I just kind of like it that even though Nemo is there, he's not even the saving grace. Even at the very end of the film, he's not really the saving grace, because he's not the one that actually helps them escape. His plan fails. The other guy, the main guy, his plan is the one that succeeds. So it's just a very interesting use of characters. It's smartly conceived and well put together, and it's definitely something you haven't seen in any of the four films that we reviewed uh, the past couple of weeks. Now, as for Ray Harryhausen's work in this film, Matt, do you have like a favorite creature or character? Um, or creature character. <laughs> the I, I, okay, the the giant flightless bird, that prehistoric looking bird that chases him down and jumps over the uh, the the fence and stuff. Oh sure, that one. I think that's probably the most fun because even back when I was a kid, I was like, it, it looked so good in terms of the special effect, but at the same time, the bird itself kind of looks ridiculous. Like, the animation looks great, but the bird kind of looks a little ridiculous. And I remember struggling that with even when I was a kid. And it's just kind of that neat little dichotomy. And I think it really comes through in that specific scene. Uh, and it's not a knock against um, Harryhausen at all. Uh, it is actually known as, hang on here, a uh, Ferus Hakos. Furusarakos. That's the best way I know how to say it. Forest, Forest Rakos. There we go. Forest Rakos. And it's just an interesting, yeah, I just thought it was kind of cool. And it's always stuck with me even since I was a little kid. So that's my favorite. What about you? You like the bees? It's bees. Bees. I do, actually. I mean, the giant crab was cool, and the Forhoshnika, or whatever that was called, <laughs> called was kind of neat also. But the bee, you know, the idea of the bee encasing you, you know, the audience, in that honeycomb, was just neat. How he showed you, the audience, from the perspective of the bee's captors, the honeycomb closing up. You know, it was just well made and well thought of. I mean, there are just so many awesome ideas. And most of them came from Ray Harryhausen, because that's what we talked about last week or the week before. Ray Harryhausen would come up with concept sketches and basically just give them to the producer, give them to the writers, give them to the production artists. And the writers will take the concepts, the creatures, and they'll incorporate them into the story. And the artists, the production artists, will take those concepts and incorporate those sets into the film, you know? So it's just very fascinating how a lot of these ideas and cool concepts came from Ray, Ray Harryhausen's mind. But I think my 
it, it's hard to say. As much as I like the bees and the honeycomb, I really liked the underwater cephalopod at the end of the movie. Why I liked it, because of Ray Harryhausen's technique, where he had to move each of the tentacles in a way so it gave the impression as if it was actually underwater, you know, because it couldn't move like super easily and glide all over the place of tentacles. So there there had to be a little bit of like water resistance there. Harryhausen had to move each tentacle less than one millimeter a frame to achieve that underwater look that I was talking about. So it was just absolutely fascinating. As for my rating for this film, I'm giving it a 4 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's high adventure. It's a lot of fun. There were just some story elements that bugged me. There was the forced love interest. You know, the two women that had to appear suddenly on the beach. I did like how all the men worked together despite their race, for example. They had respect for one another. But the inclusion of the women, for the sake of there being a relationship and the possibility of a marriage, just felt a little forced. Contrived, I guess, is probably the better way of explaining that. But I do give the movie, again, a 4 out of 5. But all of you should please, please, please give it a watch at some point. And it's great for families, obviously. Absolutely. All right, so now we're going to move from Mysterious Island, which... I don't think we brought up was directed by Cy Enfield and starred Michael Craig, Joan Greenwood, Michael Callan, Gary Merrill, and Dan Jackson. And we will move forward to 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. And the Argonauts, the classic story of an epic voyage that has been told and retold since the birth of Western civilization, now presented on the screen for the first time. Do your hearts crack and your backs break? Jason and his band of Argonauts, the mightiest warriors the world of adventure has ever known, in search of the fabulous magic golden fleece. Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. Here is the magnificent excitement of that legendary time when men like gods and gods like men lived and loved violently. Todd Armstrong and Nancy Kovac portray the classic lovers. Jason, the man who challenges the gods. Medea, who betrays a kingdom for love. Acastus, driven by a lust for power. Hera, goddess and woman, who defies the might of Zeus, king of the gods, who unleashes his fury at rebellious mortals. The Argonauts, caught in the clutches of the towering bronze giant Talos. The Argonauts, battling vulturous harpies. Jason, threatened by the seven-headed Hydra. Medea, the temple dancer. Mysterious, exciting, and exotic. Jason, battling the army of skeletons. Kill, kill, kill them all! 
one man defying a universe of mortal and immortal danger. Jason and the Argonauts. A search that became a legend. You got it right here. Jason and the Argonauts, 1963, directed by Don Chaffee and stars Todd, Todd Armstrong, Nancy Kovac, Honor Blackman, and Gary Raymond, among others. And this, of course, uh, stars our ever-loving heroes, Jason. Uh, dubbed people, by the way, the, these, uh, <laughs> Jason and Medea were actually dubbed by, uh, different people. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, Jason was dubbed by Tim Turner and Medea was dubbed by Eva Hayden. <clears throat> Both uncredited. And it's just basically the, it, it is the mythical story brought to life of Jason and his quest to retrieve the Golden Fleece. Um, they do this on the Argo, on the ship, the Argo, hence the Argonauts. And it is all of the wonderful misadventures there. This is quite possibly... I know people think of Clash of the Titans. I, I know people think of the Sinbad movies. But this movie, for me, Jason and the Argonauts, is like the quintessential Ray Harryhausen movie. And I think it is literally the height of Ray Harryhausen special effects, and it is also one of the, I don't know, best movies of this era. It is, I don't know, I just think it is, for me, for me, a practically flawless film. I want, and part of it is probably nostalgia. Just because I grew up watching this with my brother and my stepdad growing up. And it was just complete epic fantasy. Uh, it's got everything. You know, you've got your Greek gods. You've got sailing. You've got sword fighting and spells and all this kind of stuff. And yes, we'll get into that more with the Sinbad stuff next week. But it's just kind of like the original epic the original fantasy epic that just takes these people on this amazing journey and all of the different kinds of special effects that were present in this particular film so <clears throat> i don't know this one gets a five for me i am all about this movie it is it is basically my favorite Ray Harryhausen movie. So I can't say enough good things about it. I'd love it. You should see it no matter what. Tim, you'll probably be a little bit more objective. What do you got? Oh, no, not at all. This is definitely one of my favorites as well. It's a fantastic film. Right after Ray Harryhausen finished the Mysterious Island, or just Mysterious Island. He actually wanted to do an adaption of H.G. Wells's novel, The War of the Worlds, and even went as far as to create sketches and produce some test footage featuring his version of what the aliens would have looked like, but nothing came of it. So he moved on to Jason and the Argonauts. And believe it or not, the story actually does an effective job at retelling these Greek mythologies 
you know, and at that time there wasn't really another film that was made that actually told these stories in such a way. Um, especially when it came to the creatures, no other movie was produced that actually had creatures that were somewhat believable, you know, at that time. It was usually, you know, like some kind of middle European strongman, you know, pretending to be a cyclops or something like that. And Ray Harryhausen's creatures and uh, and stop motion effects added just this extra fantastical realism that just made audiences go gaga. And as we discussed before, Harryhausen indirectly acts through his models. Earlier on, he wanted to be an actor and even took some classes at L.A. City College which is where he learned to act and to also react. And he used some of those performance techniques that he learned in his stop-motion performance, which is why we got such great performances out of the Talos character, which is the big, giant... uh, How tall do you think that is? 800-foot statue? 1,000-foot statue or something? (laughs) It's... It's un. It's. I mean, it's. It's ungodly how tall it is. I mean, well, I mean, it, to give you an idea of the scale, when she tells him to go after the heel and he gets the plug, that plug is like, what, ten foot, twelve foot around. Sure. So, and that's just, and that's supposed to be like right about the backside of your ankle. That would say like put maybe the size of a half dollar. So, I don't know. I'm six four. Half dollars, about I guess an inch and a half, so seventy seventy times seventy times ten feet, so seven hundred feet. I would say it's seven hundred foot statue. It's, it's enormous. It's enormous. Harry Housen had to act through that statue, you know. Whereas, and I mean by act through the statue because the statue Talos couldn't move like the skeletons, very much like the cephalopod from Mysterious Island. It's a big metal statue so it has to have creaky sound effects and sound effects of different metals just rubbing up against each other so it had to move very robotronically very stiff like every single movement had to feel like rigor mortis in a way at least that's how it felt for me watching the film you know it was just very effective and and again vastly different from any of the other creatures that Harryhausen had to indirectly perform through. Jason at the time cost less than $1 million to make, which is not a lot of money back in that day, uh, especially for this type of epic film. Because of this low budget, only one scene was left on the cutting room floor, and I believe that scene pertains to the skeletons. But every single scene was carefully blocked, and it was carefully produced, so not even one second of film went to waste. Everything they shot was for the movie, and that's that. That makes the grand scale of this film that much more impressive. I mean, look at all the different creatures and characters, all the various matte paintings. With that big 700-plus-foot Talos statue, which he modeled after... I forget the grand statue, the big statue that apparently the Greeks built... Colossus of the Rhodes, huge statue. They had to build a replica, like an actual regular-sized foot of that statue so that the actors, a scale model, there we go, they actually had to build a scale model of that so the actor could act with it and, you know, 
open up the back of the foot to drain out its blood. And speaking of Ray Harryhausen again acting through his characters, how about it when Talos is like grasping for air and grabbing his throat as the blood, the life is pouring out of his foot. I mean, you can actually see that character die and you can feel all the feeling emoting from that performance. The film was entirely shot in Italy. Uh, The blind man scene with the harpies was shot in actual ruins at the Temple of Pesto, which I thought was pretty interesting because they were allowed to have actors run along the top of the ruins, which I highly doubt they'd be able to do that now. And again, most of the iconic sets, Harryhausen designed himself. This movie does have a lot of iconic sets, whether if it's the boat with the ship's figurehead facing the wrong direction for the god lady to speak to him a little easier so he's not hanging off the boat. But you also have the land of the gods. It's just very interesting, you know, how all those sets look. You know, it just adds a very godlike tone. It's obvious you're watching gods speaking with one another because there's this cool smoke effect framing each shot. And the idea of the gods playing chess is very interesting. And that's something that Harryhausen utilized again later on for Clash of the Titans. I love the idea of whenever a normal man, a a mortal, a mere mortal appears to speak to the gods, they appear on the chessboard along with all the other figures because the gods are playing chess with people and countries and with creatures and animals and all that jazz. And it's just, again, a a very imaginative film. So I'm going to ask you this question again, Matt. Was there a creature in this film? Another model that you appreciate more than others, I guess? Yeah, the Hydra battle sequence is pretty ridiculous. I think that is definitely probably my favorite scene, although... Uh, the Tello scene is pretty cool too, but I mean, if I gotta pick something, if I gotta pick something, I'm gonna go with the Hydra battle sequence. Although I did have a question, because according to Harryhausen's book, An Animated Life, he says that it cost three million to make, because it was the first time they'd had a budget that big. So where did you get the million from? Oh, I got it from the voice of Ray Harryhausen himself. <laughs> Ah, Not in person. These are the words of Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, he, yeah. I was watching a uh, a little special feature, and yeah, he actually said one million. Interesting. Yeah, he says here. I mean, Jason I would, Argonauts I would bet on the book. Took nearly honestly two but. years to get. Well, I don't know if he said it. I mean, that's weird. Yeah, Jason and the Argonauts took nearly two years to complete and cost an unprecedented for us three million. That's crazy. Yeah, he definitely said at the time costs less than one million on the thing that I heard. Hmm. But interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I, I would probably. I mean, again, I would bet on the book since. Well, maybe that was just their amount. Maybe they only had a million for the special effects. Quite possibly. Yeah. And the rest of the movie. So that would make sense too. Yeah. So a third, but that's still. You know, that's a huge amount of the budget. It's literally 30% of the entire budget just for you to do special effects. That's pretty good. Right, but I mean, the the movie was grand. I mean, he also had to shoot uh, a lot of the second unit, you know, and especially with every shot that would feature one of his miniatures, 
you know, he had to shoot those scenes as well. Right. And also the ratings board at the time, the ratings board, he had to watch out, especially with the with with how he used the skeletons, because apparently and I thought this was kind of funny, Jason and the Argonauts would have received an X rating if that skeleton fight scene took place at night. Yeah, because originally, I think in the original storyboards, he wanted to have the skeletons to, like, come out of graves at nighttime and, I guess, maybe ransack the camp or something that the that Jason and his men were hanging out in. Yeah, they couldn't do that because they were afraid of the uh, the ratings board. In fact, this was coming off of the seventh voyage of Sinbad, where in that film... Um, the UK actually banned the entire skeleton scene, you know, and there was only one skeleton in that film, but they felt that that one skeleton was going to frighten the children and keep them from uh, coming to the movie to see it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Crazy. Yeah. Well, here's something else that's kind of fun. So Columbia apparently, or Universal, you know, Columbia. So Columbia actually went ahead and submitted this film to the Oscars for special effects. And it was completely ignored in favor of Cleopatra, of all things. And they said that uh, the reason why is because the stuff they saw in the movie wasn't that impressive. Despite everything in that movie being something that virtually had not been done before. Oh, wow. Little little slap in the face there, I thought, by the Academy. And before I give my final rating, I just wanted to ask you, and I know apparently a lot of criticism, especially from animation enthusiasts that Harryhausen has gotten over the years was for the inclusion of an actual human being playing the King Trident character Mm -hmm. instead of actually having or using a model. Does that bother you at all? Or even as a kid, when you watch the film, did that bother you? No, no, I'm, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it never really bothered me. Either. I didn't realize that was didn't realize that was a controversy. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm okay with it. Oh totally, yeah. And <laughs> I thought as a kid it just looked cool because you know if you have something so big, somebody so large, a giant coming up out of water, it's going to look like it's arising in you know slow motion. A lot of that had to deal with how they shot the film because they had to shoot it in 96 frames per second because they were using the ship as a model and the mountains and all that because they were using a human being, a real guy playing King Trident. Triton. I kind of figured that they couldn't use a model because model mixing with water probably wouldn't come out all that well, especially when you're trying to shoot water as a miniature. So Matthew has informed me that it is... <laughs> King Triton, and not King Trident. King Triton holds a trident. Thank you, Matthew. And choose the gum trident. Why not? <laughs> Let's do that too. <laughs> but as much as I do, as much as I do like the Hydra creature, nothing beats the skeleton fight scene for me. It just seemed like it was such a great challenge for Harryhausen. True, and he was building off of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, where you get the first one. So. Which is which I think is really cool too. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from that, and I know it's it's kind of awkward, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because we keep referencing the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which technically came before even uh, Mysterious Island. But since we're trying to do all the Sinbad stuff together, that's why we're kind of waiting on that. And yes, I agree that while the the seven skeletons are really cool, I don't know, there's just something. 
Um, on the technical level, the seven skeletons, yes, are better than the Hydra, but I always just kind of think that the Hydra just looks so damn cool fighting Jason and everything, so, you know. Believe it or not, at the time, that was probably his most challenging creature, because he'd forget, if he had to leave to, like, go use the bathroom or answer a phone call or something, he'd forget where a head was, you know, which head was moving up or down. I, too, I give Jason the Argonauts a 5 out of 5. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. And I've always loved it. All right. Well, then that brings us to the end of the movies for this week. Next week's movies, we're going to be closing out our Ray Harryhausen series with The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad from 1973, and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger from 1977, the final Columbia Pictures Sinbad movie. And so I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nittwit12345. And, of course, come aboard that information super highway track on Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Joan Greenwood, I get to say this. Now I'm an old hag. I get to play much more interesting characters. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>